If you would take your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Let me read to you Psalm 88 as we begin. The title is A Song, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, for the director of music, according to Maleth Lamoth, a mascal of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble, and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart from the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit and the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves, Selah. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me appear repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Selah. Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Just one side note. In the ESV, they have a note for the last part of the psalm that the darkness is my closest friend reads as darkness has become my only companion. Today we come to the end of a series in which we've tried to construct a theology of memory. And what I'd like us to do today is to consider the last piece of the puzzle, if you wish, the last part of the structure, um, and then sort of review what we've seen and see if we can come up with an outline, a framework, what the Bible says about memory, and particularly about the loss of one's memory. When people begin to lose their memory, they find that this involves a changing identity, that they become strangers to themselves and to others. Um, And what we read here in Psalm 88 from Haman, I think very much fits within that, the idea of dementia, of losing one's memory and losing a sense of oneself. The loss of memory, or of dementia, is a form of affliction. But what is affliction? Perhaps one of the best-known writers on affliction in the 20th century was the French mystic, uh, Simone Weil. In the realm of suffering, affliction is something apart, specific, irreducible. It is quite a different thing from simple suffering. It takes possession of the soul and marks it through and through with its own particular mark, 
the mark of slavery. See, a toothache is a passing, it's painful, but it passes. Affliction is enduring, drawn out, and it really deeply impacts the person who is afflicted. Affliction attacks a life, either directly or indirectly. I would say every aspect of a person's life certainly can be physical, can be social, it can be psychological. And the problem with affliction is it is isolating, it is alienating. That when one is afflicted, oftentimes one feels cut off from other people. As we, again, in Psalm 88, from Heman, he's, he's cut off. That people don't want to deal with him anymore. They don't want to be around him. One could argue that dementia creates strangers. It is alienating and isolating. To be afflicted is to be a stranger. Those around you cannot or do not understand and one feels alone. But the idea of being a stranger is a theme that runs throughout scripture. And we find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God's people, in fact, are to care for strangers. They are not to exclude them, but they are to, in fact, care for them. One example in Romans chapter 12, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And it is worth noting that the word hospitality in Greek is made up of two words that, even if you're not Greek scholars, you would know. Philo, love, like philosophy, okay? Xenos, like xenophobic. Hospitality is literally the love of strangers. Now, what I hope to show today is that the tradition in scripture of caring for strangers is something that we can, by extension, take that we are to care for those who have lost their memories or are in the process of losing their memories. Elie Wiesel, in his essay, The Stranger in the Bible, points out that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, there are three words for stranger, ger, nokri, and zar. The ger lives among the Jewish people. He or she has adopted the Jewish faith, Jewish customs and values, has made Jewish friends. On the other hand, the nokri is someone who desires to remain separate. He lives among the Jewish people, but almost in a ghetto type situation, he does not want to assimilate into the culture. He's a friendly outsider, but he's always an outsider. The czar, on the other hand, is someone who lives there and is hostile and wants nothing to do with the surrounding culture. In that vein, another writer has argued that the Ger is, in fact, a sojourner, technically a resident alien, who was a person living in a mutually responsible association with a community not originally his own, or in a place not inherently his own. He was a, quote, protected or dependent foreigner, a protected stranger of another tribe or district who coming to sojourn in a place where he would, he's not strengthened by the presence of his own kin. In other words, he doesn't have peers. Everyone is a stranger to him, if you wish. He put himself under the protection of a clan or powerful chief. So the stranger, the gear, is someone who is, in fact, cared for. Someone who enjoyed unusual privileges. To love the stranger is to love the gear one who has come to live among God's people, has chosen to live among them, someone who is worthy of respect, hospitality, 
someone who is worthy of welcome. The stranger is to be treated in this way. God points this out time and time again in the Torah because the Israelites used to be strangers. They used to be aliens in Egypt. And God says, you know what? You used to be aliens. So when there's an alien living among you, you should know how to treat them with respect because you certainly weren't treated with respect in Israel. In Leviticus 19, the alien living among you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as, you, as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Simply put, we're not to make them feel like strangers. They become a part of the community. I hope that we can see that the people of God at all times, Old Testament, New Testament, and beyond, are people who are to accept and to welcome the stranger. You may recall the last parable that Jesus spoke, the last public teaching uh, before his death. It's found in Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these, the least brothers of mine, you did for me. I think we would agree it's not a real stretch to see that this applies to those who are losing or who have lost their memories. There is one significant difference though. Those, a part of the Christian community who have lost their memories, are not strangers. Okay? It's not like they're not a part of us anymore. They are, in fact, a part of us. They didn't come in. They, they have been a part of us, and we are to treat them as such. What we find in Scripture is that we are to extend hospitality to the stranger as God welcomes the stranger, the disabled, the ones that society has pushed aside. David reminds us in Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and be not stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Interesting, do we think of God as accepting bribes? He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, And loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. But let's stop a minute and let's back up. It isn't as though we would say, here we are, we're nice people, we have a congregation, we are the people of God. And then suddenly we find one or two or more 
who begin to lose their memories, who are suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, and we're like, well, well, they're kind of strange now, they're strangers, but we'll, we'll still treat them well. We need to recognize that our identity as the people of God marks us as strangers as well. Around 130 AD, a report was written to someone who wanted to know more about these people known as Christians. Um, the author and the recipient of this report are unknown to us. But this is a part of what was written in the report. For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They do not live in cities of their own. They do not use a, particular, a peculiar form of speech. They do not follow an eccentric manner of life. In other words, they live among the people. This doctrine of theirs has not been discovered by the ingenuity or deep thought of inquisitive men, nor do they put forward a merely human teaching as some people do. Yet although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike, as each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the country in clothing and fooding, I'm sorry, clothing and food and other manners of daily living, at the same time they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. And this shouldn't surprise us, because Peter had written earlier, the century before, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. The calling of the Christian is, in fact, to be an alien. We are called to live lives that will change and transform the world without ourselves being changed and transformed by the world. And that's what Romans 12 is all about. Um, we, don't, we should not be conformed, but we should be transformed. And in the process, we should change and transform those things around us. So, let's put it as succinctly as possible. To be a Christian is to live as a stranger. We are strangers. We are to be a community of strangers. And as such, in our calling, we should embrace those who might be seen as strange, those who have lost their memories or are losing their memory, those who are disabled, those who aren't what other people would say normal. We should embrace them because we know what it means to be a stranger. Now, in looking at the whole business of stranger and affliction, we should look to the person of the Lord Jesus to instruct us. First of all, in the matter of stranger, think about this. Uh, we have four Gospels, but only two of them tell us the story of the birth of Jesus. And though we've probably never thought of it this way, in both accounts, Jesus is presented as a stranger. You may, rem may remember in Matthew, he's born in Bethlehem, but Herod wants to kill him. So... Joseph takes him and Mary to Egypt and at a certain point Herod dies and the angel tells Joseph you can go back home now and we are told that that fulfills Hosea chapter 11 out of Egypt have I called my son in the same way that Israel as strangers in Egypt are called out so is the Lord Jesus uh, the child Jesus is called out of Egypt so he is a stranger and then in Luke's account He's not born in his parents' hometown. He's not born in Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem. They have to go there because of the census. And there's no place for them to stay. They are truly outsiders. They stay in a stable. And he is put in a manger. 
So when it comes to the matter of being a stranger, we certainly see this in the Lord Jesus. And it's not just Jesus. We see this in the Old Testament of God. Jeremiah 14, O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress. This is addressed to God in prayer. Why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only a night? You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. The people are saying to God, you seem to be a stranger to us. And they cry out for mercy. Then in the matter of affliction, I don't think I need to belabor the point here that Jesus is certainly someone who is afflicted. Affliction attacks, as I said earlier, every aspect of our lives, social, psychological, physical. It is isolating, it is alienating. And we see this in the person of Jesus where all his disciples flee. They leave him alone. His greatest sense of affliction, I think, came when he was abandoned, the experience of being abandoned. And we hear in the words of Psalm 22, we hear them from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm comes naturally to people who are afflicted. But in this, they walk in the steps of Jesus. In the passion of Jesus, we come to see affliction. We come to see that life isn't always what we think it should be. It isn't what we want it to be. But in the person of Jesus, we see that even in affliction and in being a stranger, there can still be love. And we certainly see this in Jesus. How can affliction be overcome? Through love. And where does love come from? It comes from the Lord Jesus. You see, to survive as a stranger, to survive in affliction, cannot be done alone. The people of God are to stand with those who might feel as though they are a stranger, those who are going through affliction. The community of faith is to stand with them and say, we are God's people together. I'm sure you know this, but affliction can destroy love. By becoming afflicted and isolated and alienated, a sense of love and connection can in fact be destroyed. And we as God's people need to make sure that this doesn't happen. Dementia creates strangers, but love overcomes strangeness. Okay, this is the final piece of the puzzle. Let me just, I don't want to say briefly, but let me review what we've seen in the last, the six sermons before this and see if we can come up with an outline of a biblical view of memory. As I said earlier in the series, theology provides us a lens through which we can look at the world and see it correctly. So, seven things that just... Seven points for us to begin to create this building of memory. First of all, it begins with a re-describing of the world. We talked about this early on. If you think about it, the Bible, in fact, re-describes the world. When you read the scriptures, it tells us what reality is. And what it tells us oftentimes is very different from our perceptions, or from our thinking, or the tradition that we've been raised in. 
we make sense of the world through various stories. We've been told stories, and so we're like, okay, this is the way the world is. But when we come to scripture, we find that the stories oftentimes are very, very different. And what we are told, what, what is presented, is something quite different. A world that is marked by individualism and competition, autonomy, everybody wants freedom, everybody wants choice. Scripture tells us that God is king. And we live in a democracy, we don't have a monarchy, but no, God is king. What we find in scripture is that salvation comes through weakness, strength comes through weakness. Salvation comes through brokenness and that gentleness is revealed as who the Messiah is. When it comes to memory, we see that memory is redescribed in scripture. That it isn't simply a matter of remembering and forgetting. It's not purely an intellectual uh, issue that's going on. It has a moral dimension as well. It has a moral dimension and so when someone stands before God on the, on the final day of judgment, they will not be able to say to God, I forgot. Because memory is much more than simply remembering. Our memories are faulty because of the fall. That we are, I think, pretty clear on. Um, but memories are also rebellious. They stand against God. The second thing the second part of this, this building that we're going to construct is what does it mean to be human? If in fact what we find in scripture is a redescription of reality, I think this is where we begin. Um, we are not the products of chance and we are not without value. And our value doesn't come from our abilities. We'll see that in a minute. When we went through this, we saw that to be human means to be dependent it means to be embodied. We have bodies, relational, to be loved, but also ultimately to be broken. I don't want to deal with all five, but just to point out some things. As human beings, we are utterly dependent. We are completely dependent. And I think this is where the terror of dementia or Alzheimer's grips us because we don't like the idea of having to depend on someone else. A caregiver, someone to take care of us. I'd rather remember things myself. I'd rather remember how to do things myself. But as I mentioned, you know, when we were first born, Laura's point out, the pot roast stage, you know, for three months, you, kids don't really do anything. We may, in fact, at the end, go back to that. Because we are, by definition, dependent. Everything we have is a gift. Everything. And therefore, our value can't be seen in terms of our abilities. Because whatever, Paul says, what do you have that you weren't given? Any ability I might have is a gift from God. We need to recognize that. We are embodied creatures. Um, and we aren't, we aren't simply bodily functions. Um, but we have bodies we aren't simply brains. Okay? We aren't, as we saw in another series, brains on a stick. That in fact to be human involves having a body. When God created Adam, he didn't take the dust of the ground and make a brain. He created a body. And thus, we are humans with bodies. To be human is to be mortal. Our time here is not endless. And as a result, decay is inevitable. 
but we are still human even as we decay. It is not as though in the early stages you're not really human and then at a certain point you learn to talk and you, get, you, you know right from wrong and all that and then we're like, okay, now you're human and then at a certain point in your life you begin to lose certain faculties, you begin to lose the ability to remember like, oh, sorry, take your card back, you're not human anymore. No, to be human is to be dependent and is to be someone who ultimately will decay and die. If you lose your memory, you don't lose your person card, if you wish. You are still someone who is made in the image of God. This stands in contrast to the story that we're told by the world. John Locke said that a human being is a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and a reflection and can consider itself as itself the same thinking thing at different or in different times and places which it does only by that consciousness which is inseparable from thinking as it seems essential to me to it. In other words, if you have self-consciousness, guess what? You get to be human. But what about those who don't have that awareness anymore? This is a false story. We need a redescription of reality as found in Scripture. For many people, memory is what defines a person. And if you lose memory, you're no longer a person. And how tragic that is. I think it's tragic for a number of reasons, but I'll just give you two. First of all, it fails to take into account that we're all messed up. We're all broken. It's not as though somebody, you know, we're up here and then looking down on the masses, the unwashed masses, and you people don't have the memory that I do. We're all broken in different ways to different degrees. But the second thing is, there's this assumption that there is something that is normal and then everything else is defective. This is the baseline. This is what it means to be human. This, you must have this quality of memory and if you don't, then, sorry, you are a defective person. This is not what we find in Scripture. The third thing, the third post, if you wish, in our building is what does it mean to remember? Here, I think we think in terms of total recall. You know, you experience something, you record it in your brain, you process it, you file it away, and then on demand you can play it back. Sort of like a computer. You can bring back the memory. But memory is much more than retrieving information. It is, in fact, an emotional activity that takes place. It is a biographical activity. It is something that is historical. We don't simply remember things in an unedited, uninterpreted way. It's fascinating when you get families together and they tell stories and you know, they laugh and they tell stories about how certain things happen. We were with friends last night and talking about one particular event that everyone remembered and they all remembered it in different ways. And it didn't lead to a fight, but no, no, it happened this way, it happened that way. Um, we're not computers. You know, we can't recall the information time after time. And I think Ben and I were talking about this. That in a sense, every time you recall something, you're actually not recalling that event. You're recalling, you're recalling that event. And then if you tell somebody else about it, you're recalling the recalling of that recalling. You know, memory, I think, oftentimes is not what we think that it is. It is subjective as much as it is objective. And when we remember something, we remember it emotionally. 
we're not simply these automatons and you just push a button and we can automatically remember perfectly with total recall everything that happened at a particular time. When you combine the fact that we are fallen, we are broken, um, then in a real sense, memory is a scary thing. And who we are, well, who are we? God knows. God knows who we are. And I can't stress that enough. When you write yourself a note to remind yourself so that you can remember, you have an external memory, if you wish. When you get together with family or friends and you talk about things, that, in a sense, is an external memory. So there are aspects in which I remember internally, but there are other things that are outside of me. So there is individual memory, but then there is communal memory. And this is where the church comes in. But beyond that, this is where God comes in because God knows all things. And where I may forget, God does not. One writer put it this way, whether the individual remembers, or even when the community remembers for the individual, God remembers. Some comfort then can be found in the fact that God's memory is unfailing, even if that of any given human being is defective or even totally lost. God never forgets. So now the fourth post in our building. What do we say? What does scripture say about God's memory? God's memory is quite different from human memory. Not only because it's not a neurological act, as you find among us, but because God sees us and holds us as we actually are. Uh, our memories can be rose-colored glasses. You, we, can, we can idealize the past or we can see it in a very dark light. But God sees things as they actually are. Part of the problem when we talk about God's memory is that for God, there is no past, present, and future. And memory sort of whole works on that, that thing that I'm here in the present and I'm remembering the past. That's what memory is, remembering the past. Well, God exists outside of time. So God's memory is radically different than ours. It isn't God saying, okay, here I am in the present. Of, oh yeah, I remember when that happened way back when. God is eternally present. What we find in scripture of God's memory is that is his action. That he remembers his people means he acts toward his people and he sustains them. To be remembered by God is to be sustained by God. To be remembered by God is to be the recipient of his divine action. Simply put, when God remembers, God acts. That's what scripture tells us. And so to be remembered is to be, uh, is to be sustained by God. And we talked about this very briefly, but it's very powerful. When we are told that God forgets something, um, part of that can be very disturbing. It's like, well, it looks like we got a defective God. He can't, you know, he forgot something. But no, in scripture what we find is that when God forgets, it no longer exists. It does not have existence. There are times when we wish we could remember. There are times we wish we could forget. But when God forgets, it no longer exists. So when God forgives our sins, Sins that we may, in our minds, carry with us 
and like every day, forgive me for that, forgive me for that. You know, but it does not exist. God has forgotten it. He has forgiven our sins. If we lose our memories, God is with us and for us. He is acting with us and for us as he moves us to the future. To be remembered by God is to endure in the present and into eternity. God will be there. God remembers and he holds us in his memory. The fifth post in our building is the issue of being present. We saw this a couple weeks ago that many people resent time. Time is so limiting and time is seen as an enemy. We need to go back to scripture to see a radical re-describing of time. We live in a time, no pun intended, in which time is seen as a commodity. Something that you can buy or sell. I mentioned this. People say that you can spend time doing something. You can buy time, waste time, use time, keep time, lose time. And all of that loses sight of something very powerful and that is we need to be present in the present moment. We need to remember that how does God remember me? God acts toward me in the present moment. And as God's people this is what we should do. When we encounter someone who is losing his or her memory or has lost their memory we tend to focus on the loss. Oh, they can't remember what happened back in the day. Instead of thinking, I need to be with this person right now in the present moment. One could make the argument that as human beings we are time travelers. We remember the past, we imagine the future. We reflect on the past, and we look to the future. But rarely do we take the time to slow down and live in the present moment. We fail to recognize this is where God is right now. God is with us in the present moment. And as we are with, as a community, as we stand with those who are strangers, we must do so in the present moment. Not mourning, oh, it's, it's, it's so sad they can't remember the past. There is, certainly that is sad. But we're with them right now. We weren't with them years ago, we're with them right now. And we should remember that. Being with someone in the present moment doesn't mean we have to speak or talk, say anything. We can sit with them. We can be silent with them. Someone who, in Oliver Sacks' words, um, is desold. They seem to be an empty shell. But with a sense of what God has done in the past for his people, we can stand with them in the present moment. Two more things and then we'll be done. Number six is what we saw today. And that is the strangers among us. We are to treat the stranger with compassion. And I asked earlier, does the tradition of offering hospitality to strangers provide an adequate model for finding room within the Christian community for people with dementia and those close to them? And the answer is absolutely yes. 
what we find in scripture with regard to how we are to treat strangers, that instructs us as how we are to deal with those who have lost their memories. And then lastly, we are to rest in the memories of God. Who are we when we have forgotten ourselves and those that we once loved? Who are we before God when we have forgotten who God is? For many, to fail to be able to remember means you no longer exist. And the idea of losing one's memory evokes a deep fear of losing oneself. I mentioned this earlier in the series. Um, According to uh, polls, uh, research has been done, dementia is more feared than cancer. It's something people fear greatly. But we need to remember that when we lose our memories, God is with us and for us. He is acting with and for us as he moves us to the future. To be remembered by God is to be in the present moment. Let me read to you something we read earlier in the series from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where shall I go from your presence, from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God's knowledge of us is too great for us to understand. And at the heart of God's knowledge of us is that he remembers us. He holds us in his memories. You see, when everything is said and done, it is not my memories of myself or my family or my experiences that gives me identity. It is the memory of God. And therefore, if I lose my memory if I am afflicted in a variety of ways so that I no longer know who I am or I no longer know who you are, God still knows who I am. That is who I am. That's my identity. We fear, I think, what our neighbors fear because we live in the same culture. But as God's people, I think we need to rethink this matter of memory. Thank God for the gift of memory. But don't let it be an idol. Don't let, us defi- don't let it define us. We are the people of God and we are to rest in the memories of God. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect far more than we realize we think as unbelievers think. And we fear the things that they fear. And when it comes to the matter of memory and the loss of memory,
thinking oftentimes isn't that different from those around us. I thank you that you've given us scripture, you've given us each other, that we can study together, we can instruct one another, we can hold each other up. That when it seems that we are in darkness, we have brothers and sisters around us. If perhaps we begin to lose our memory, there are those around us who remember for us. But above all, I thank you that you remember us, you act toward us in love and grace. We've seen a lot of things in this series, some of which we've already forgotten. But by your Spirit, may you bring them back, may we think about them, meditate on them, and have a greater sense of what it means to be a human being and how we are to care for the strangers among us. We bow before you and give thanks for your great grace, how you have gifted us, you've given us life, you sustain us, you are present with us. It's truly amazing. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Pray for David's daughter as she travels. You would watch over her. For Gracie as she has her third birthday, we give thanks for that. And for Ransom Daniel, we are so thankful. May we have a sense of your presence, that you are present with us every moment in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.